This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode 64, with guest Eileen Pullman. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Savorova, and welcome to the show. You've probably heard of Lemonade and Charity before, delicious soft drinks that contain only organic ingredients that also support fair trade. The project was born in the Bohemian district of Hamburg called San Paoli with the intention to change the world drink by drink. Beyond fair trade, every bottle purchased supports the Lemonade and Charity Foundation, and my guest today, Aileen Pullman, is the managing director of the foundation itself. It was founded in 2010 and raised more than 7 million euros, which the organization puts to good use for a variety of social projects in the regions that are often disadvantaged in the global economy. Today, Aileen shares her story as we speak about identity-forming experiences in her life and what it means for her to support the underdog. We talk about her recent trip to Rwanda and learn about projects that Lemonade and Charity Foundation support. Grab your charity or lemonade and join me for this conversation with Eileen. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to rate it on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Hello, Eileen. Uh, welcome to the studio in the heart of Kreuzberg, Berlin. It's so wonderful to have you here today, given that you had a, quite a trip traveling here. And I really appreciate your time and coming all the way from Rwanda, then Brussels, then Hamburg, then Berlin. Thank you very much. It's awesome to be here. So let's get started. I mean, I have a lot of questions and I really am looking forward to getting to know you. And I was curious, I mean, I'm, I'm going to start with a bit of like uncomfortable question, but you said like you've lived in London and South Africa for many years, over 13 years, and you come from Hamburg, but yet you mentioned that you never really would say that you were from Hamburg. It was not something you would necessarily felt important to mention or felt like this was the roots that you were proud about mentioning Hamburg. Like how come that was the case and have this changed? Um, yeah, it has absolutely changed. I'm such a Hamburg girl. And uh, <laughs> being back, I know um, that it's important to have roots somewhere and it helps you. I guess throughout my journey, Hamburg just didn't seem important. Like if you're in London and you tell people you're from Hamburg, it doesn't mean anything. And then in South Africa, it was also very far away. So it just didn't seem, yeah, it didn't prioritize it. And when I had to explain where I was from and what my identity was, Hamburg didn't feature so high. Um, which has completely changed over the last years, definitely. Mm -hmm. So how do you identify yourself? Like now, now you're a Hamburger, but you also have your parents come from different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. So how over the years did you identify yourself being in Germany and being outside of Germany? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And I think for everybody who's been away from home for a long time, home becomes much clearer. So I guess while I was growing up in Hamburg, being non-white, it meant that I was very comfortable identifying with everything that was not German, because also in the part of Hamburg where I grew up, it was just a little bit more cool being non-German. Where is <laughs> um, that? In hamburg Mümmelmannsberg, which is seen as a, like it's like the project of Hamburg in a way, and that's the outside view on it. It's like the projections um, that are made in connection with that part of the town, which is um, a high high-rise building, ghettoized uh, type of living situation with a huge part of sort of uh, migration histories. And I mean, I'm now looking back, I'm extremely grateful for having had that experience. My mom still lives there. It's a part of my life, simply because you really know a city when you know every part of it. And it's a part that nobody ventures to if they don't have to. So it's almost like being in on a secret so yeah, growing up there, it meant that in the sort of diversity of beings around me, it was just a little bit more cool to not be pure German or just German, mm -hmm. <laughs> even though everybody and the majority are German. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that now looking back, and I know I'm still in touch with a few of my friends right. from there, we're all very German. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. But what was the, your first, because you've also mentioned when we talked before that there was this parts that you were trying to explore a little bit, like your family side, right? Your mm -hmm. mother's side, your father's side. What was the first time when you had this identity forming experience when you realized this is it, like this is my tribe in a way. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think actually that experience was when I was in London at university because there were so many like me. So it wasn't necessarily when, when I went to a place. Like I went to Ghana and going to Ghana, 
after well, I think once I finished school and going there is obviously also quite an isolating experience because you realize okay yes this is part of me but I also don't necessarily feel at home because mm -hmm. I'm just getting to know it so the place where I felt most at ease or most at home is if I had to connect it with a feeling it's the feeling I had at SOAS at my university in London where there were so many that were just like me that were sort of multicultural born in one place raised in another with parents from different places and just being amongst each other being able to relate without wanting to make it a huge biracial identity drama issue mm -hmm. it just for that moment I was like okay um, I'm not alone and I felt very much at home amongst my peers there. It's, it's amazing because like you are among people that you do not need to explain anything no. and it's to me that's how Berlin sometimes feels mm. like because people come from all kinds of parts of the world and I feel that it's just normal like if you say like hey I'm from this part of the world I grew up here I moved around it comes as a like it's almost a must for mm -hmm. Berlin right to blend in but then you do not need to explain yourself like why did that happen and I think that's a, such a changing conversation because I lived in Hamburg for three years But uh, there was always the question why that would happen, whether in Berlin or other parts, like also New York, London, people don't ask the why. They're just like, oh, cool. I mean, that seems like a, like a normal thing. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, blackness wasn't questioned um, in London ever. Like, I could have been a Londoner if I didn't open my mouth. Like, Have this changed, though, in Hamburg? I mean, you were, I'm not, we're not going to talk about age. <laughs> you look in early 30s. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, thanks. <laughs> But um, do you feel like that have changed in Hamburg over the years? How the communities, like people of color, feel back like 20 years ago to today? Oh, definitely. I mean, I also have that tribe now at home. So uh, there definitely has been progression. And there are so many of us especially in the sort of um, Afro-German community. Hamburg is a, is a city with a huge African diaspora for a long time, I think, even bigger than Berlin. So, and I remember I came to Berlin with a friend from London, I don't know, many years ago, and we counted black people. And <laughs> we did our own little survey because <laughs> we were so amazed at how little black people we saw in everyday life yeah. coming from London and then from Hamburg and then we counted them in Berlin and we counted them in Hamburg which is clearly as a representative survey <laughs> um, so we counted like 25 in Berlin and like 150 in Hamburg within like the first three hours oh. and we were like yeah It sort of proved my point that there's just much more blackness in everyday life in Hamburg than I saw it then in Berlin. And it also has changed a lot. I know that. And so, yeah, I'm just to reiterate the point that as an Afro-diasporan, uh, Hamburg is a good place. Oh, cool. That's very good to hear. I actually, you see, I was not thinking of that, but that's a big number shift. Mm. I mean, 125. I mean, <laughs> Berlin needs to catch up like big times. <laughs> but tell me about like you also were mentioning that you've always been extremely multi-involved in many things and it's part of your character like you throughout your life you did various activities on top of university you worked you participated you are a basketball player still today how many times do you play basketball like, uh, three days a week oh my god that's amazing but this has been always you a person who is taking every free time to kind of invest in yourself mm -hmm. where does that come from It's a really good question. I mean, even my therapist asked me about this. <laughs> you know, after doing like podcasts with 60 episodes, who knows? Maybe this is, I'm partially a therapist. Maybe this is, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so I was trying to think back to the time where this started, but I, I've always been multi-involved, even as a kid. I was in Girl Guides. I played basketball, t um, table tennis. I went horse riding, like... I tried out all these things and clearly my mom has something to do with it because she's obviously she was the facilitator and to this day she can't be bored. It's really horrible for her to have nothing to do. So I'm pretty clear she somehow like transferred that part onto me. And I think there's two sides. One is I'm really, really horrible when I'm bored, like my mom, like when I have nothing to do, I get restless. So I'm not so good at being with myself and I'm not the Zen person that sits there and can look at trees and admire how wonderful the world is. I sit there and in my head it goes, okay, what else can I do next? What can I do next? How can I progress? Clearly, it's not particularly healthy and I don't recommend it to anyone. However, I do find calmness and relaxation in a lot of like going to play basketball to me is a way of Meditating. tuning out and it's you go into that gym and the minute you walk in everything else outside fades I mean clearly I do play competitively which means there is still pressure 
on the court, but everything else outside leaves and it's a really nice feeling to have this. It's almost like going into like a holiday situation and then coming out, being refreshed, being tired and there's no other way. Well, maybe half marathon or marathon running where you have that level of exhaustion, that kind of physical exertion and I really, really enjoy it and that's why I do everything I can to still do it because at my age I have to be really careful because <laughs> basketball is such a high impact sport. So I do have to do a lot of extra strength training and stuff to be able to actually for my body to be able to absorb it. I love so, it how seriously you take it. <laughs> I do take it very seriously because it gives me so much. And the day that I can't play anymore is going to be a very sad day. And also because I know I'm coming towards the end. You know, like I have a few more seasons where my knees are going to be okay, Eileen, let's do it. But w when you say seasons, you also compete. Yeah, yeah. It's a league. I play in a league. This is amazing. And so... <laughs> I think that for me, it was always a way of testing out boundaries, looking at how far I can go, but also because I've always been multi-interested and I also take teams serious. So when I'm part of a team, I am part of a team. I'm never the one that comes sometimes and doesn't come the other. Like I'm always fully committed to everything that I do. And so once there's teams or groups like with Girl Guides, you have a peer group and they're your friends. And then it becomes more than just an, it's not just a date in my calendar or my diary, it's I'm going to interact. Plus then with time being my time traveling to Ghana or studying, I studied development studies and African studies, clearly being interested in the wider world and also especially interested in injustice and how it's possible to just let things be like for people to be disinterested in injustice and not having the urge to at least try and contribute to changing some of them. And so once you get to that point, there's just so many things that you need to get involved in because you, you need to try to at least yeah. uh, contribute. I always felt like I needed to contribute. And I think this urge is there till today. I love it, this proactive mindset. I, we, we can definitely re relate on that. I have a hard time holding myself back. Because it just like, you know, my hands get like each like, what can I do? Like, whether it's like physically or, or mentally, like there's something challenging that needs to happen. And also, since I was also into sports, my I always say my meditation is like cross country skiing or any kind of sports. That's where like magic happens yeah. for me, at least. Yeah. But how is it for you in terms of like, you know, as you traveled, as you lived in different places, how is it for you to form friendships, but also losing friendships given that you were so involved in this kind of like you said that you're a good team player you were part of like of course the basketball team and other organizations but there's also the friendships that are outside of it and do you feel like over the years of your life as you reflect back there were people who didn't understand you there were people who said I'm sorry but you're not enough for me Yeah, I, and I do have an anecdote my friend Josie in, in London broke up with me <laughs> uh, <laughs> I remember I was sitting in the library studying, like I had a shift at work, went to the library, did my thing, and I got an SMS and she said, Eileen, I'm really sorry, but this friendship is not going to work like this. I remember this text so well. And I'm like, I was reading it. I'm like, I was sitting next to a friend. I'm like, I think Josie has just broken up with me. <laughs> and then it turned out that she was actually just really sad. She wanted to spend more time with me. And I was telling her, I'm like, and it was really like an, an intimate relationship in a way, but friendships are intimate relationships. And she said to me, yeah, but I, this is not how I felt this would go. I thought that we would spend more time together, that I could invite you over. I wanted my mom to get to know you better because she was a Londoner and she was living at home, as you do in London if you don't have to move out. You don't, even in university. And I was like, yeah, I would love that too, but I have to work to be here. It's not like some of the things that I do are not my choice. For me to study here means I have to go work. It's a fact. And so we had this long conversation and we did remain friends after. But to me, it was it's very representative of if you are friends with me, you do have to acknowledge that I have all these other things that are important to me. But my friendships are incredibly important to me and I do prioritize where I can. I'm the friend that never turns off her phone in case something happens to anyone. Like mm. I'm the friend that will take you home from somewhere because if you had to, like even as a teenager when my friends got drunk, I was the one that where they could pretend to be spending the night <laughs> if they had lied to their parents. I was the one who made sure that they didn't get too drunk, you know. I was very good at keeping friendships or I am pretty good at keeping friendships over long distance. So now when I returned home after 13 years away, I slid into my school friendship circle. Like they were still there. I had come home every year mostly. I went to visit people. I went out of my way to go visit the my London friends who now live all over the world and 
go to Oslo to visit the one and then go to Amsterdam to visit the next and or meet up with them in Zanzibar or wherever they are at this time. I am quite good at keeping long distance friendships and some do fade away after time, but they do even if you live in the same city. That's so true. I think generally I'm quite good at checking in every now and then. And right now I have become better at accepting that some friendships you can't hold on to and it's not necessary, that some fade yes. out and new ones come in. And to accept that, I think, was difficult for me over long yeah. distance. But I, I have such a respect. I mean, given being so busy, as you said, and working on top of the things you had to do. So yet you were caring for people. You were there for them. I think it's a lot to manage. And I guess you're a genius multitasker <laughs> and, a, and a person who's like have a very good peripheral view of the things happening because there's oftentimes the hard thing is like when you are such a person who is like restless and want to do things, people might feel disconnected right and that may happen but I love that you there was Josie I she's still around she's still there so <laughs> that was just one case but tell me so you lived in London for a while mm -hmm. and then you decided to move to South Africa and the reason I want to talk about it is uh, one is this is basically how you heard about or you came to work to Lemonade and Charity Foundation so there was kind of like this first kind of first steps that you started in South Africa and after that you moved to Hamburg. But also what I found curious is when we talked before, you mentioned that, you know, at first you wanted to go there for two years and then you stayed for seven years. And I was just trying to understand what were like the strings that were pulling you, you know, back and something that was pushing you back. Like what was this relationship with South Africa you've had? It's a love-hate relationship. <laughs> um, so the reason I went to South Africa, it's really simple, actually. I did study development studies and African studies in London. I did my master's in tourism and development. And I was too poor to be able to do unpaid internships, which in the development sector and this, at, up until this point were very common. So UN internships are unpaid. You know, so there were lots of reasons why I couldn't do go the normal route. Um, and a friend forwarded me this this advertisement for this position, which was a paid traineeship in South Africa. Um, in the field, it was around well, it was a year before the World Cup in South Africa, and it was tourism related. So seeing that I had just studied it, it sort of made sense just rationally, not mm -hmm. emotionally, because I had focused a lot on West Africa. Obviously, I am half Ghanaian, and I had spent some time in East Africa um, visiting friends, engaging with the countries in that region. So South Africa was, because it's such an outlier, and if you study the continent and its history, South Africa is an outlier in a way. And so I was like, okay, fine, I'll go for one year. That was the deal. Mm -hmm. And But Before we go mm -hmm. in there, you say an outlier. Could you give a bit of explanation how come? Yeah, so because South Africa doesn't have the typical liberation story, and when I say the typical liberation story is liberation movements peaked in the 60s, 70s on the continent, and South Africa was still under apartheid then. So it was a had a completely different settler history because of the apartheid system with a minority government um, and didn't have the same kind of of liberation sort of timeline that other continents had. Also, South Africa itself um, always identify, well, and I might get some, it's okay, you can contact me and tell me that it might be different, but South Africans also have a disconnection in a way to the rest of the continent. Mm -hmm. So studying and being in sort of African and Pan-African movements, South Africa has never, in my experience, featured that highly because it was still, it has such a particular history mm -hmm. or histories, actually, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Ghana, as one of the first countries to be liberated, the story is a completely different one. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just hadn't studied it. It didn't feature on my horizon. I, the only time I got in contact was because I had this great professor at university and she was South African and I did history in African and Caribbean literature and she was South African. And so we read uh, Kutsia, which is a South African author. And that's how I engaged with the country. And that was pretty much the first time. So, yeah, it was okay. just my, my personal interest yeah. wasn't there. Interesting. And then yet you get this internship, which makes you go there. Yeah, I was like, yeah, fine, I'll go for a year. I might I might experience something new. It's a, a chance to get to know a country that I hadn't engaged with. And so I, I went and it was part of a, so now the GIZ, back then the DED and the GTZ were two separate organizations and they fused in 2011. And I was there throughout that process. So I went for one year. It was an exciting year in South Africa because it was the World Cup year. 
and anything that can unite anything in South Africa is helpful. And so the World Cup was, um, I'm really happy that I got to be there to have experienced the vibe of something that was worth uniting for, because it doesn't exist right now. <laughs> it didn't previously. And so, yeah, I, I enjoyed my first Yeah, even though I found it difficult and awkward and weird and being non-white German, obviously it's confusing to people in South Africa. So the idea, the the necessity to box you somewhere. Oh, for them it was clear that I was colored, which only in South Africa is uh, seen as an ethnic group, mm -hmm. um, which meant that I was most likely from the Cape Town region because that's where 60% of the population in the Western Cape are um, colored. And there's also a movement of re claiming or disowning that term, but it's still being used. And so I was like, no, I'm actually German. And yeah, everybody was confused. I felt I had to explain myself a lot again, um, which I didn't have to in the UK anymore. So that was an interesting, also part of my identity forming process and be like, oh, it's important now to, I needed to out myself as German, which I found really interesting. Mm -hmm. Every time I'm like, yeah, but I'm German. Oh, okay. So there was always that moment. Yeah, but Then I got offered a two-year contract right after that, within that first year. And I, it was a rational, all this was rational. It wasn't emotional decisions. It was, okay, if I take this contract, I will earn for the first time, I will earn some money. I can repay, I can pay back my student loans. So it was very, very rational why I decided right. to stay. And then I stayed two years and I was comfortable. I had made some great friends. And I was like, nah, this is fine. I'll just stay here a little bit longer got my contract got renewed again and then you always know okay I've got two years on my contract I can do these two years and then I was pregnant and I had my kid and I was like okay I might as well say another two years it's just I got very comfortable I also got comfortable in London after my bachelor's I'm like oh, let me I was a student union president for one year which is a paid position in London Amazing. and <laughs> of the in the university and then I was like let me do my master's now because it's only one year and I, I mean comfortable and rational as you said rational so, I'm extremely yeah. rational and sometimes disconnected from maybe what might feel right but are often and I think it's a privilege to be able to act on intuition all the time it's an extreme privilege if you can afford to do what you intuitively feel to do I couldn't so I knew if I wanted to do certain things and I wanted to be comfortable then I had to make some decisions based on that and I did very much but I was always I had learned even previously because I went to the US for one year on a scholarship to do a high school year and I was like in the middle of the woods in Michigan and yet I made great friends and had a great time. <laughs> like I knew that I can make a home wherever I am and I can, I'm good at going into connection with people. And so I've proven that again. And in South Africa, again, I got, I got comfortable. I was rational. I made rational decisions. I was able to save some money. I was, I knew that being a mother in the early childhood years would be easier in SA for me mm -hmm. than they would be in Hamburg. And so I, yeah, that was very rational but I had a really good time in South Africa so. no, no that's really great to hear and I, I love how you talk about it like this rational approach I mean any risk based on intuition I have a respect for people who do this but I always feel like especially given today you know when we see like okay economies are quite shaky interest rates are rising we you better have some safety net Otherwise, this can really, there's a chance this can go great. There's a chance this can go really bad. And that sounds like a granny <laughs> kind of uh, no, thinking. No, the truth. But the truth is like when you like build something of your own, when you said you are the one who had to pay the student loans, not your parents, you don't have that capacity to take those risks and say like, I'm just going to do what I love. No. Like, and for my mom going to university in London was a huge risk. She was like, but how are you going to pay for it? Like, how is this going to work? Like she was completely overwhelmed with me making these decisions for her, those were already radical. And I had obviously made a good plan. I went to work as an au pair for six months so I could save. Like I had all these plans and um, knowing that I didn't have a safety net. So really? I worked like 40 hours while I was a student at times because I was so scared of not having enough money. But I didn't. I, I was fine. I always had enough. I was able to travel. I, I was really comfortable. But it's just this sort of, I think it's this urge. And I also, when I hear and being in the social business sort of bubble now of all these people like found like all these founders and stuff they've achieved. And I'm like, hmm, 95% of you, if your business fails, you're fine you're going to be fine because either you inherit or you just start something new. And when you hear these stories of people saying like, yeah, and then I tried this, didn't work, then I did this and I didn't work. I'm like, yeah, but this is a privilege of being able to do this again and again. Like I don't see myself, I don't think I, I would have ever 
been comfortable enough to try making a high risk move because there would have been no one to be like, you know what? No problem. We're, we're happy you tried. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Like this didn't happen. So I think there's a real, I would love if this bubble would acknowledge that a little bit more, that mm -hmm. it comes out of extreme, being extremely comfortable, allows you to be really risk-taking. And I didn't have that privilege, but I also, I'm not, it is what it is. Like I have extreme gratitude also for my journey because it taught me so much. And I'm happy for everyone who makes something out of nothing. And I feel like everybody has the obligation actually yeah. to do something social if you did, if you were lucky like that, because it's luck, it's a lottery. Yeah. I'm happy for everyone. It's just that I, I didn't have that privilege. And that also meant that I did have to make and to Having this day have to push. make decisions in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's good that you have that understanding because that opens uh, and resolves question for yourself. Like you are free to do things because, you know, like, look, I'm flexible to the extent if I follow like those guidelines. But Absolutely. tell me, you went back to Hamburg after mm -hmm. 13 years joining the foundation which we're going to talk about yeah. but how did it felt for you to go back to your home turf after such a long time and again going through this like kind of identifying mm -hmm. experience right yeah so the decision to go back home it's I knew that I was going to leave South Africa by the end of the year my contract was running out and I felt like it was time I'd been there seven years a lot of my friends had moved on to bigger cities like my South African friends had moved on to other cities in South Africa as well. So everything felt kind of new. So I was like, okay, it's time. And then I thought, okay, I'm going to go home at the end of the year. And then I'm going to just be for some time, like figure out what I want to do, because I'd never done that. Like everything has always been seamless. Like I had this job in South Africa. I hadn't even finished my master's thesis yet. Like everything has always been sort of overlay. Like, mm -hmm. the, yeah, there's always been an overlay of things at the same time. There's never been a gap. And I was like, this is my time. Well, then the same friend who forwarded me the job in South Africa forwarded me the um, advertisement of the Lemonade and Charity Foundation. I didn't know them before I left Germany. Like they were founded in 2010. Mm -hmm. I had been in South Africa since 2009. So I had not, not heard of them before. Seen a bottle, I think, on one of my holidays before, but I wasn't in their bubble. It wasn't a vitamin B kind of job referral. I just, I saw the advertisement, I applied. Because, and what did strike me was, the idea of being able to work with independent funds because working in the bilateral development corporation sort of system means you work with tax money and which to this day feels, I felt like number one, a huge responsibility. And also I didn't like the way that decisions, how money was spent and on what sometimes. And also there's a political and a, and a moral part of a, like neo-colonial structures within the whole system, um, which I always thought about and didn't feel particular comfort in, even when I was part of that system. So there were lots of reasons why I was like, oh, let me try this. It sounds fresh. And I can continue to work with South Africa from back home. Mm -hmm. And let me go for two years, that was my, <laughs> and figure out how I like Hamburg, and then we can see where I'll go next. And so I applied, I got the job, I left South Africa six months before the end of my contract. So I resigned early, I arrived on the 21st of August, I started my job on the 1st of September. So this was, I had to find a flat, a Kita Platz for my daughter in a very short period of time. It was again, as, as Eileen does, um, everything really quickly in a whirlwind. But I really enjoyed and liked the idea, the freshness of the concept. I liked the the newness of everything. In the foundation, there was one other person that had worked there for, I think she had been there about a year before mm -hmm. I joined. Shout out to Agnes Fritz, who's now the um, CEO of Viva Con Agua Arts um, and runs the Melantor Gallery. As she was the employee there who recruited me at the time. So there was two of us and I'm like, everything is possible. Like there's the two of us and we can do, and with obviously consultation with the founders and others in the company, but it's new. And I really like that. And they welcomed me, the whole Lemonade team welcomed me with such open arms. And like they were waiting for me three months at the time. <laughs> so they were like, oh, it's so good that you're finally here. Now we can get started. That was the vibe. So I had a great start with Lemonade. And I loved being home. I loved the prospect of being able to invest in my childhood friends mm -hmm. for longer than three weeks at a time, which had been the case for 13 years previously. The amount of goodbyes and hellos that I have done in Hamburg for so long. I really like the idea of being there for a little bit. That's good. And you mentioned about the foundation, so maybe we can just break it down a bit to understand yeah. it better. First of all, lemonade and charity, most of the people know today. I think it's delicious, organic lemonade mm -hmm. and charity. I think both of them are in the bottles. Yeah. So it's like a soft drink. 
And uh, this idea was born in Sao Paulo, in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I know that the idea was to support a fair trade, but was there already intention to start the foundation from the start or that came a bit later? Um, no, so the original idea was always to generate funds to support projects mm -hmm. from the first bottle. It was also clear that if ingredients are being sourced globally, that they would have to be fair trade and that they have to be organic. So these ideas as the pillars have always been there and supported from the first bottling, from the first bottle that was sold, five cents go to the foundation now. In the first two years, they were just um, donating normal out of the GmbH structure. But um, the tax advisors told them pretty quickly, like, okay, we see you are serious with this. You need to come up with a tax-friendlier construct because you really do want to. You are committed to these five cents, which in the beginning, obviously, people thought was ridiculous in the startup phase. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, they kept to it. And the foundation was born um, a year later in 2011, was the foundation registered. And that's basically the construct two separate entities, the mm -hmm. GmbH, like from my perspective, the GmbH is almost like a fundraiser, right? And we then are the moral integrity of this brand and we get to then implement with these funds. It's quite a successful project. I mean, I was reading that the foundation raised more than 7 million euros and have a quite international traction. Like it's mm -hmm. very present in UK. Mm -hmm. That was very interesting. It's very hard to usually be successful in the UK market. What do you think is really the secret sauce? Is it is it great marketing? Is it great product positioning? Is it a mixture of things? Because what I've ex seen or what I've observed is that many social projects struggle to get the attention, the traction, and the funds to really build the impact they want to build. It's rather minor. Mm -hmm. Here, there's a budget of 7 million euros to support all those projects. Like This is a quite a successful mm -hmm. endeavor. Okay, so from my perspective, there's a very limited marketing budget. So they've never been like there's no hardly any outside investments, like big investments, which, which meant marketing budgets are always small when you don't have. So it was just extreme. Well, number one, it's a great product. So I think it's just the product itself, like the, the quality of the product has sort of has there's the one segment of the market that just likes it delicious it's, so the other part is the the aesthetic so they invested some in the in the branding which i mean it's 10 years old it's still timeless from my this is my personal subjective perspective now 100 percent. um i mean if you look at it the if you, the instagram posts that show like one of those bottles with some flower in it on a like minimal design shelf somewhere get like much higher traction than social content so when they post about the project so the design aspect of the bottling has definitely helped and the creativity around product placement the way that they have the upcycling like making salt shakers out of the bottle so they stand in restaurants so you don't have to that's marketing without having to pay for marketing right like so there's just some little things that they've been doing i think originally also the relationships within the horeca scene so the hospitality recreational cafe scene worked a lot and helped a lot there were some real committed supporters in the beginning and now they're obviously quite big in the in the retail sector mm -hmm. so you can get it now in Rewe and Edeka and so on so which is obviously higher volume so the organic growth has I think done a lot also because it's social previously products like that have been sort of sidelined to sort of eine Weltläden like the sort of one world shops um, the little bit sort of let's call it conservative but a niche sort of social justice product market was always in a particular corner and the aim I think was also to get it out of there and place it somewhere else obviously I'm speaking from the foundation side and I'm not employed by the company, but this would be the stories that I've heard, the feedback mm -hmm. that people have given me in the past. So um, I definitely say that's part of the success, plus the witty way of using current events and sort of also campaigns that might damage you quite positively, like when the sugar campaign happened, where the government basically said the sugar content wasn't high enough to call it lemonade. Mm -hmm. And then they made a whole marketing campaign of out of that so without smart. having to pay very much That's and it smart. was the most successful marketing campaign so this is something they've definitely been really great at with a really small team and with just a lot of commitment everybody works really hard on the company side I travel with them regularly so I know and everybody <laughs> is very committed so I think that's part of the success that's great to hear and where is it available I mean when it comes to the actual products it's Germany 
Wow, the market has expanded so much. Um, it's available in the UK, in Holland, in France. It's through distributors everywhere in Europe. Um, you can get it in Belgium and Greece, and but not with a lemonade team, but then through distributors. But tell me about how do you select projects mm -hmm. for the foundation? Because there was a couple and I saw that now you have an open call for project proposals from Madagascar. Mm -hmm. Like how does this work and who usually qualifies to receive the support? Yeah. So number one, the, our project countries are always related to the supply chain of the company. So uh, for example, they get lime from Mexico. So Mexico is a project country or we get some tea from Rwanda. Mex uh, Rwanda is a project country. So there's always a connection to the product in the selection of the country. And then we have a call for proposal which targets local organizations. So we try and work um, exclusively with locally registered NGOs and not with INGOs, so international NGOs, because we feel that the sort of um, trickle, the more organizations that are involved, the more of the money goes into separate administrative processes. And we know, and I know from experience, that are some really great organizations registered locally that don't necessarily have access to these big international funds. And we want to also contribute to the institution building of these organizations in those countries. So that's something that's very particular also to us. And we have a call for proposals, um, organizations, a little bit like if you called for ideas of a startup pitch process, really. They pitch us their ideas in a, in a proposal um, and say, over the next three years, we want to do this, this or that. Be it, for example, train a number of unemployed youth in the Cape Town region in coding and becoming social entrepreneurs. And we want to start an incubation process. And that's what they want some funding for. Mm -hmm. We then go into sort of a pre-evaluation process with an internal advisory board that is made up of employees of the company that are volunteering just because they're interested and us and my foundation team. And then we select them to pitch to the external board, which is a, a board made of lots of different qualifications. People are from be it country expertise, but also social business expertise or development sector expertise. Mm -hmm. It's all kind of expertise on there. And then we sort of discuss uh, each project in detail that has been selected for this stage. And once they are through this, round, we visit them. We visit every single project before it's funded and build relationships, understand the context better. And once we visit and everything is the way that we had the proposal sort of said, and there's no great differences, which never have been there, to be honest. I mean, there's the sector is built on so much distrust. And that's also something that the sort of general population always asks, like, how do you know the funding goes there? And like, well, how do you know that your money is not currently being invested in arms? How do you know that your money in your bank is like the that's amount question, of detail? Yeah that people put on these projects and then the distrust is crazy when we look at how naive we are with so many things here. Right. Um, and then when we have visited, we come back, They go. Th we, we report how our visit has gone and then we fund. So mm -hmm. we invest the, quite a lot in the relationship building before the funding actually And goes. throughout when the project is ongoing, right? That, that was the case yes. right now. You were traveling to Rwanda mm -hmm. to visit the team, I guess, and yeah. just to check on the progress. I did two things in Rwanda. So one thing is that every employee of the company gets to go on project trips um, once a year if they choose to. The first week I was facilitating a project trip, visiting some of the partners that we work with in Rwanda, as well as visiting the tea plantation that the company sources the tea from. So there's always a visit to the production site, wherever we are depends on the country and the product. Um, and then we visit some of our partners. And that's what we did the first week. And the second week, I went to see organizations that had applied to us that were not yet funding mm. um, and had lunch and dinner with current partners that I didn't have the time to visit the previous week. But it's, yes, trying to invest in the relationships again, seeing people and going back again. And it's really, it's awesome to reconnect. And also now with COVID, because there was such a long time where we traveled very little, um, it felt really special now to be there again. Mm -hmm. Yet you're funding only one to three years, right? After that, it stops. What happens to those projects? Mm -hmm. Like, do they have to be self-sustainable? No, we fund up to six years, but we oh. fund in two phases. And um, so there's a first phase and then we, they can reapply for a continuation of funding. One phase is up to three, three years. years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
and we feel everything after six years because we've had the experience of project before we before I started and before we had like a system behind how we were going to use utilize the funding that was available. It was often that project would just hand in a budget and it was sort of like done on the side by the founders who ra ran the foundation sort of voluntarily while they were running the business. And obviously after a few years that didn't work anymore. And we felt that projects that had been sort of regularly getting money over a longer period of time weren't particularly, and you don't have to, and I don't blame them, fundraising further, and which is from an institutional sustainability perspective is really dangerous. And we saw that through COVID, especially when our product, because our funding is product and market related. So there was a huge amount of in, um, insecurity around our funding in the first few months or the first year of COVID. We were like, okay, We don't want to add new projects right now because we don't know what the world looks like in a year's time. And this really brought it home to me that as a business, you need to diversify fundraising streams as well because you don't want to be dependent on only one market, for example, right? And this is the same for any institution. We support all these projects in fundraising, how to fundraise, how to write proposals in trying to recommend them to get bigger funding from other organizations after our fund our um, the period with mm -hmm. us because we focus on really small organizations and often they are not yet so we often the first or second or so international funding stream which means they're not yet they don't speak the donor language yet they're still learning and with the hope that after their time with us if they choose to they're able to also access other funding it's a more of a way of keeping everybody on their toes than to commit even though there is Mm -hmm. Arguments for both. I mean, the fact that we commit for three years is already it allows them to plan ahead. There's lots of funding, one year funding cycles out there. You can't do anything in a year. Right. And then funding through to they know that they can reapply after three years and means they need to build in a progression of what happens over those six years. So that's a long time to be supported by one partner in the international development phase um, already. So I'm I'm very aware of the pitfalls. I'm very aware of the arguments pro and con. This is just how we chose to try this out. We might discuss this in a year's time and say, okay, maybe we continue to fund because we really like a lot of our partners and we want to work right. with them longer. Maybe we say, no, this is um, how we feel it's comfortable. And this is the beauty of working in such a, with a small team. There's five of us and um, being able to constantly reevaluate, change how we do things and not being sort of just this tiny little soldier mm. in this army of like 20,000 employees, yeah, right? Yeah. Like with decisions made on government level by the ministries. I really enjoy the How, how many quickness. projects are you overseeing? Um, currently, we have 30 projects in mm -hmm. seven countries with room to grow and double that number if we so choose to. But we, on a capacity level, we need to come up with a little bit of a of a different system now. So we're reevaluating how we do this because <laughs> we don't just want to grow, grow, grow and then have 20 people overseeing 100 and so projects because it some loses the, the, something gets lost. So we are currently at a point where we need to think of how we're going to do this moving forward. This is very impressive. And I love how you mentioned that you support them. You're one of their first supporters, foundations that work with them. So they get kind of the feel, how it's like, how to report, right? Mm -hmm. I can imagine they're regular, like once a year or maybe more yeah. often they report back. Mm -hmm. And then they can, if they're really serious about this, if they really want to make it sustainable, they learn from that experience and Absolutely. they go to bigger funds. Yeah. So you're in a way like a seed stage operational VC, yeah, which is like, hey, here's the capital, but also here's the experts. Yeah. You just have to be proactive yeah. to How, make the on. most we of don't, it. We're not the experts. So we you connect with the yes. experts in a we, way. And yeah. we connect them mostly like so we're really strong in that we say that we try and be as power critical as we can because this sector is so marked by racist logics and how it works and whose expertise counts and what local knowledge is acknowledged and what isn't. And it's interesting because then if a project tells us they, they want to preserve ancient seeds because there's, hard, there's so many sort of gene-mutilated rice varieties and they want to focus, then um, hardly anybody acknowledges <laughs> this. But when some startup dude says, I'm going to sell indigenous rice because it's so much healthier in some Berlin... <laughs> then it gets the hype. So it's really about sort of acknowledging the innovation where it is and innovation can be seen in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And so the power critique for us is so important in the sector. And it's also the only way that I can still be in the sector because it's a difficult sector to be operate in and to be proud of working in in these times. So And be, part of being power critical is to also acknowledge who has the expertise and really like mirroring it back 
organizations and NGOs in the so-called Global South have been really conditioned to speak a particular language, to um, appease the donor's wishes, to speak of partnerships when there hardly ever is a partnership. I mean, also this word mm. is already difficult um, because what does that even mean? One person has the money and the other implements and that's a partnership? No. like, mm. And we always bring it back to what do we expect of like our intimate partners, like of your best friends. Like you want transparency, you want trust, you want all these things which are hardly ever given in these kind of relationships originally and acknowledging that and working openly to try and sort of dismantle that a little bit is really important to us. The expertise is always within the project. And I often remind them, often in the early stage, they're like, Eileen, so how should we do this? Can you give us advice? I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I'm not an agronomist. I don't know how to best do it. But I'm pretty sure you thought of something and I'm pretty sure you have some a contact. If you don't, I can see if amongst our project partners, there's someone who has already done it, right? And then I connect them rather because it's much better advice coming from others that are implementing than from me sitting in the middle of some Pauli lake and <laughs> <laughs> knowing nothing about, well, now I've learned a lot about agriculture in the last years but yeah. agriculture for example but that's something to sort of really bounce ideas and be there as a listening person but to really refrain from giving practical advice because we know nothing about the realities and how to implement projects in the most fragile mm -hmm. regions in the world under the most difficult circumstances in the world so it's just a lot of acknowledging our positioning and what decisions we should make and which decisions we really need to defer to our product partners. 100%. Well, thanks a lot for sharing this because I think there's definitely, you're making a complete shift in terms of how the foundations are perceived and being yet so approachable, yet very much involved and participative in, in the progress. I like it because it is represents the partnerships that you speak about. But I'm curious... This is just one of the uh, projects that you are taking care of. I mean, you're working full-time at the foundation, you're raising your daughter, there's a couple of other projects you're involved, and you've mentioned to me that there's so much things you want to do and you have so little time for all of those things you still want to implement and do. If you had the time, let's say magically, like one day, I don't know, 20 hours is added to your day, what else would you do? Where would you invest your time into? I would coach a youth basketball team. Wow, nice. If I had a little bit more time, another day a week, well, I can totally mostly, see you as a I coach. I would absolutely coach. coach, ideally, a women's basketball team, a youth team, because I love teenage. I mean, teenagers are awkward, but I think it's such an important stage in life. And I would love to work with them. Basketball is a great game. It teaches you so much. And yeah, I would love to apply myself in that sort of stage of would, athletes becoming. Would you consider it if you, maybe your daughter grows up a bit? I think my daughter would not want to be coached by me. And, I yeah, mean, but she, meaning like that she would be a bit more like independent because now I hold a... She's nine, nine and she's super independent, okay, which is really already. helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, obviously it's this is not the time, number one, because I am claiming my time right now to play myself. But maybe in a few years' time, when I decide not to play anymore, I could utilize this time. Coach but Eileen. It's the, it's, yes, Coach Eileen, absolutely. I used to coach my university team. I was a player coach for some time and then I coached for one year and I loved it. I, I'm tough, but I'm nice, I think. <laughs> and <laughs> like uh, yeah, I would love continuing to spend my time in the gym on the weekends. It's, it's just a great space. I'm really competitive. I love the competitive spirit. And it's sort of in a safe, it's competitiveness, but in a safe environment, you need to learn how to deal with loss, like to, to lose and to win. And yeah, that's why I think it just teaches you so much. My daughter will never step, she's like, no, I think basketball is your thing. Like she is already, and she'd be so embarrassed by me as like the, the basketball mom on the sidelines. And that's why she doesn't want to <laughs> play. She has taught me as much. Well, maybe, you know, she's nine. You, you never know. There's this one thing that I think as a kid, I absolutely hated. I was like, this is absolutely no me looking at my dad and then it's funny like years later I'm like ooh I'm like becoming <laughs> that person a bit more. I hope so I hope so we try <laughs> we try cool and you're also doing like a community for parents mm -hmm. you're also running that so there's a couple of initiatives you're taking care of in Hamburg right yeah community kids is a um, parents children group for black parents and and their kids I founded it in 2019 other than my personal need being um, a black mother of a black child in the Kita system, I had questions and I didn't know very many people who could help me with that. 
and that's what how this arose and obviously got extreme push during 2020 and the mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter movement did create a little bit more of awareness and more parents were like, okay, hold on, I do need this space for myself and my kid to just uh, be myself and be able to have these conversations without having to justify them. But mostly now my focus is really on just sort of healing and having one Sunday a month we meet and we just play. The kids play, the parents, we chat, mm -hmm. we offer yoga, like just have this hub of, yeah, niceness and sort of wellness because we go through life with all these challenges, mm -hmm. an extra challenge and this extra package on our baggage on our backs every day and just having this time to just be amongst so, ourselves and so how can someone apply or be part of oh, it? Oh, you just come. Every every last Sunday of the month at uh, Bauspielplatz Hexenberg in Hamburg, It's we're, gonna, we're there from half past two every last Sunday of the month and you can come and you bring your kid and let's have fun. Okay. And when it comes to foundation, how mm -hmm. can one support as a a like individual mm -hmm. um, to as a, maybe as a company that if they want to contribute or support, how can they do it? The best, I mean, as an individual, drink the drinks. <laughs> <laughs> This is It's, it. If you have a housewarming party, yeah. anything, just buy lots of lemonade. Yeah, mate, <laughs> vodka mate is a great drink. Zekt <laughs> mate, you know, I mean, there's all these ways and I'm, I need to be careful in how I'm not allowed to advertise, but It's just a great product. Yeah. But as a company, you go into partnerships with the GmbH. I mean, they are still, we're still a, not a huge company. I mean, the we, they are a small, com relatively small company. So there's still an enormous potential to, for growth. Partner with them, cooperate, look at the products that come out of our foundation's projects. Because, uh, for example, now in Rwanda, I went to see one of the projects that we funded for three years, which is a ceramics, essentially a ceramic studio that is run by the Twa community. And the Batwa community in Rwanda is the most marginalized community in the Rwandese real society. And But they've always done clay pottery because they didn't have land and they didn't have cattle. And so they used the earth. They were sort of um, shunned out of the rainforests when the con gorilla conservation started. Mm -hmm. So that was their natural ha habitat. So they lost the forest and were sort of had just clay. And that's how sort of they made a living. And this project is run by a Trois organization that said, this is what we know how to do, but let's modernize pottery and create these ceramics products that are beautiful. And that would sell for so much money in like one of these design shops here. They're beautiful. Right. And so we're now looking at maybe um, creating a better market access to some of the products that come out of these projects because mm, a lot so of them produce something. So that's also a way of finding out what products um, they could potentially source from some of our partners. That would be exciting, be, like a marketplace, right? Absolutely. And um, just with nice design and nice sort of product placement, we could really, that's sort of our next challenge because we always come back from these trips and we're like, wow, I would have paid so much money for this. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Wow, this is exciting. I could see the... Lemonade charity marketplace yeah. or something like this. Yes. That could be that could be very interesting. And that people already love and are like so loyal to the brand, they would be so in, right? Yeah, I think so too. And I know there are some great people like Folk Days here in, in Berlin, run by Lisa Jaspers, a good friend and just great person. I mean, they already do like fair sourcing of products from the global south and then selling them at the actual price, but making sure that everybody profits equally from it. And this is something that we could definitely um, reciprocate Like we could do something similar and make sure that they're seen. And I think, you know, why I still, why I love my job so much. And this last trip, um, I came back yesterday, <laughs> has um, again confirmed this is I get to work with these inspirational people all the time. Like everybody I'm, I'm meeting has done something amazing. Like they've created their usually visionaries working in their own home communities, realizing that they something needs to change. Like I get to see all these products that are beautiful And I get to meet these amazing people all the right. time. So my head is constantly, my brain is constantly expanding. And I think that's why I'm still there after seven years. And that's why I'm going to stay for some time because it's, um, it's just, and I don't want to fall into this weird, like almost this language that just has, it's like the superlative, like they're so amazing and so inspirational because I'd also see the struggle and the, you know, the work that goes in there. But I feel immensely privileged to be able to sort of get access to their brains and their right. visions and this in so many different countries and so many yeah. different and so many different topics. And the one does like a greenhouse for potato seed farmers and the other one creates pottery and another one does handcrafts and the other one does design. I mean, there's some, and in South Africa, I don't know, some preserve the sun and koi 
culture, which is the indigenous sort of South African population, and the others have a coding academy for girls. I mean, this is like the sort of um, I love it. The I range love it. of sort of brains that I get to engage and with. It's so fulfilling because when Absolutely. you when you as you speak to like about this, like I can see it. I, I almost <laughs> feel like I'm interacting with all of them, and I feel it's so fulfilling that something you work on has some kind of uh, there's a tangible feeling to it there's some kind of personal connection partially you know people ask me so why do you record the podcast in the mm. studio is because everything about the podcast is digital but the part where we sit here together and it makes such such a difference because we look in yeah. each other's eyes we're literally like you explain to me this this part where i already like thinking about okay my next trip to south africa like ronda <laughs> like i need to get the context i need to yeah. check this out because it's real it's real and this is what creates memories yeah. this is what's going to create memories for the rest of your life and something you can back up whatever you talk about you say i've met those people i know what they do it's different versus i love digital things i love don't get me wrong but there's different feel to it versus something you're creating simply only digitally and only interacting digitally absolutely and i i mean for example this last week i i took some of the lemonade employees to rwanda and we're very conscious of sort of the white savior narrative we always the language that we use to talk about our project partners because they are not just recipients like they create and the brand is dependent on them it wouldn't work without the foundation and without this work and their content so it's really nice and i love the feeling of facilitating that and people walking away after a week in rwanda or south africa or whatever and saying the whoa these like the way that they've done this and but this is on a real level not just on this weird like oh they're poor but so happy narrative but mm. rather um, like, wow, a real respect yeah, for, for traditional the, knowledge for the traditional mm. for local knowledge but also for the things that they create Creators. the business savvy like mm -hmm. the visions that are being created and like all of them like tend to leave After we can be like, whoa, like you, all these you, things. You actually go there, get to see people and realize, wow, they actually know more about life. Absolutely. Than me and, and yeah, my... And, and not my, just life, yeah. but also technique, like often techniques. Like yeah. they know more about, you know, creative bookkeeping, you know, like they have because they have to fulfill so many donors, different wishes. Like they often have been they're so versatile and so capable savvy. and savvy yeah. on so many levels and also often really well educated so we're trying to also break this narrative mm. um, a little bit of who is worthy of they're not they don't just get donations yeah they don't they, they get funding to fulfill they pitched us an idea and we believed in the idea and that's what when we take all the risk that goes right. with it and it's it's okay and Usually, we walk away and are really proud of the partners that we have the privilege of engaging with. I love it. Thank you, Aline, for, for sharing this. I think it brings a completely different perspective. And I just love how passionate you are about <laughs> what you're doing and you're creating at the foundation. Also, as you travel, facilitating this amazing work that people get to create around the world in the Southern Globe My last question mm -hmm. uh, for today, unfortunately, there's <laughs> many questions. It always a hard time for me to like saying like this is it for today because there's like great conversations. I don't think they have a proper ending, right? This can go for five hours. Yeah. But nonetheless, I always ask about woman author of achievement. So who is your woman author of achievement, Aline? You know, I thought about this question <laughs> previously already and there are just so many. Yeah. And there's all these writers be it Maya Angelou, be it Toni Morrison, like all these sort of black iconic writers who I really, really respect, or um, Audre Lorde, um, Bell Hooks, All About Love, like all these books that have really shaped uh, me and my identity on the German. If you look at the German market, the Adefra Collective, um, which was an Afro-German lesbian or is an Afro-German lesbian collective who really started the sort of Afro-German community struggle here in Germany. Like I, they're definitely women authors of achievement. But my mom, obviously, it's so cliche. It's like, first of all, I would like to thank God and my mom. <laughs> no, um, no, my mom, because she definitely, even though she didn't have the connections and social capital to do a lot of things that for some others are super normal, she always was a facilitator. She made sure that I went to certain things like be it girl guides or she allowed me sort of to expand my horizon and therefore sort of then run. And I had to do a lot of things on my own, but I haven't, wouldn't have gotten there without her. And I think she's so insecure. She would never, ever think of herself as that. But I definitely think that she, she did 
this and she is definitely a woman author of her own achievement and if me and my daughter are part of her achievement then she i think she's done a pretty good job amazing. if i may say so myself amazing well cheers to all the amazing women you mentioned and your mom Aline, this is a wrap of our conversation. Thank you so much for being here in the studio in Berlin and really talking about uh, your life, you know, your identity forming like experiences, reflecting on how you moved around, how things were forming for you. It's always interesting to have those conversations because it's how one grows up, how they feel, how they reflect. And I think for others, this is, can be very interesting. Many people go through that throughout their life and many have questions yeah. and still looking for their right answer. And I think you kind of showcase a great balance of how you've shaped your life and how you create it and how you are also fighting for the rights. And what most importantly, you said you're always looking for justice and supporting the underdog. And that's kind of the red thread throughout your life, which I love seeing. That's like consistent red thread. Thank you for sharing about really your trip to Rwanda, but also Lemonade and Charity Foundation. There's so much work being done. It's great to see that Sao Paulo, like this lovely, small Bohemian district in Hamburg, is making so much impact. That's where it started. That's where the seed grew. And I'm really excited about more projects that are coming and yeah, interacting with anything that has Lemonade Charity on its, like a label on its, <laughs> on its forefront. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast list, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.